So we've been in this series for a while. Today is week number eight in this series where I began every single week asking the same basic question. If you had only one thing that your life was known for, what would you want it to be? If everybody knew you for one thing, what would you want it to be? Would you want it to be your prowess at karate? Would you want it to be your ability to defend yourself? Would you want it to be for everybody saying, you know, that person is the best arguer I have ever met. They're so good at proving their point. Would you want to be known for any of the things that we tend to aggressively drive our lives towards? Or would you want to be known for something different? I said at the very beginning, I've said it almost every week, that on my better days, I want to have the one thing that's true in my life be the one thing that Jesus had as his one thing. On my worst days, I'm all selfish and I want my own things. But on my better days, I want my life to reflect the one thing that Jesus had. And so we're going to look at this verse again every single week we've talked about it. We're going to look at it again. It's the question of what is the greatest commandment. This guy comes up to Jesus. He says, Jesus is a smart guy. Let me ask him, what is the most important? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus takes the one question, what is the one thing? And he says, no, in order to get this one thing, you have to get a couple things. Because the one thing is made of multiple ingredients. It's made up of the ingredient of love God. And it's made up of the ingredients of love God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And it's also made up of the ingredient of love your neighbor as yourself. And so we've spent some time talking about these different ingredients, but it all needs to come together. And I read this verse a couple times during our journey, but I'd never read it to you in its bigger context. 1 John 4, 21, including the verse before it, says this, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. See, I've given you the second part of that passage for many of these weeks. It's a command. You can't love God unless you also love your brother or sister because it's a command. But that passage, when you read the verse before it, it says something that goes beyond command. It goes back to something logical. And it's like, hang on a second. If you're pretending that you love God, and you've never seen him, you've never met him, you've never touched him, you've never experienced him the same way you've experienced the person next to you. And if you're claiming you can love a God like that, but you can't love the person right next to you, then you are lying to yourself. And I wonder, I wonder what the lie is. Is the lie that I'm loving God or is the lie that I'm loving God? Maybe I'm just loving my own imagination of God. Maybe I'm just loving my own idea of God because the real God is the one who made the person next to me. The real God is the one who loves the person next to me. And so if I'm loving the real God, I have to love the person next to me. And so when it all boils down, 
We need to be the kind of people who love other people around us, and that's almost the litmus test of whether or not we're loving God. It's as if Jesus said, love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all the strength and all the people around you. Like it's just one more ingredient of what it means to love God. And so I want to give you a little bit of review-ish by giving you kind of a disclaimer. Number one, you need to know this. If you're taking notes, write this down. We don't love people above God. When Jesus gave his set of commands, he said, okay, the first one is love God, right? He definitely mentions loving God first. It's the top priority. It's the highest priority. We don't love people above God. He is the top. But don't ever miss this. The second idea, it's not just that we don't love God above people. We love people because of God. That he's the reason we love the people around us. It's because of our love for God that we can love the person around us. It's not that we're loving them more than God. We're loving them because of God. But today I want to add something, something we haven't yet talked about in this series, and it's something that I don't talk about a whole lot. I only really mention it a few times, uh, maybe once or twice a year or something like that. But we don't just love people, we don't love people above God. We love people because of God. But one more thing, we love people how God. We love people how God loves people. That's what we need to do. We want to love people. We love God by loving the people how he loves them. You see, I love my kids in one particular way, a way that is unique to me and my family and my wife. And you love your kids in a number of different ways. But if you try loving my kids the way you love your kids, I'm going to possibly get a little bit irritated by why you're applying a completely different standard to my kids. If you want, if you want to love me, you're going to love my kids the way I love my kids. You're going to treat them the way I want them to be treated, not the way you think they should be treated. If you love me, you're going to treat them the way the kids need to be treated, the way the the loving relationship my wife and, and I have tried to build for them. God is the one who knows how to love people. And so if we try to love people the way we think we should love people, that's not loving God. That's just loving my version of God. In fact, let me read you this verse from 1 John chapter 3. It puts it in explicit detail. It says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. See, that's the definition of love. The definition of love is sacrifice. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Or, put a different way, there's a passage of Scripture that I make a reference to every year. For the last 20 years, every January, I have preached an entire message on this one verse. For 20 years, I've done it every January, usually the second or third week of the month. It's been my standard practice. It comes from John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. It says this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the verse that forms the foundation of a principle we have in our church called community. 
It's, our, it's one of our core values as a church. The idea of community, we use the metaphor of a fire to represent it. Because each individual one of us as a, as a person is like a burning coal. And when you get us all together, we can keep each other warm. We can keep each other on fire. We can do something good with our lives. We can cook a steak, you know. But if you spread us all out, and if we don't have relationship with one another, then my own fire is going to die out, and I'm not going to be useful for doing anything. Try cooking a steak over one charcoal briquette, and you're going to be in for a world of just annoyance. And the same thing happens with Christians. When a Christian all by themselves is trying to do something good in the world, there's a lot of annoyance that generally comes along in that situation too. And so every year, second or third week of January, every year we talk about our core value of community. We talk about the metaphor of fire, and we quote that verse. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. There's just one thing. I don't think in any one of the past 20 years that I've taught on that verse, I have ever taught you the whole context of that verse. We're going to start in verse 1. John chapter 13, verse 1. And I'm going to show you something that is simultaneously helping us understand the verse that you know, we focused on, but also something that I have never, ever talked about in the context of the new command Jesus gives us. I'm going to show you the context of the verse and Along the way, I think all of us might have our, um, our hearts challenged to the breaking point a little bit. It starts like this. John chapter 13, verse 1. Let's just go ahead and put it up on the screen. There it is. It says this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's a weird phrase. It's a weird phrase here. But I want to just highlight something that's going on here. The beginning of this chapter starts with Jesus recognizing that his hour had come. You know what that means? If you know the story of Jesus, you know that his hour means that he's going to be crucified. In 24 hours from this moment, he's going to be in a grave. What's going to happen later on tonight, if you've ever hung around a church for a Good Friday or Easter Sunday morning service, you know what happens the rest of this night. He goes out to the garden. He prays with his disciples. One of his disciples, Judas, comes and betrays him. They capture him. They carry him away to the uh, court of the high priest, and they give him a trial, a fake trial all night long. And the next day, they hammer nails through his hands and his feet to attach him to a wooden cross. And then they lift the cross up so that his entire body weight is on his arms, just this nervous nerve area right here and on his feet. And he has to somehow struggle to breathe for the next few hours until he can finally die. You know the story. This is what Jesus has around the corner for him. That's what this verse reminds us of. He knows that his hour is now. His hour has come. What do you do when you're at that place where you have a chance to run away and you know this is your last opportunity to get away? He knows his hour has come. But look one more thing about this detail. Look at one more detail. He says his hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. That's an important little detail. I'll phrase it to you this way. Jesus 
knew where he was really going. He knew what was going to happen in a couple hours, but he also knew where he was really headed. He knew his real destination. And having an awareness of his destination allowed him to have a perspective that goes all the way to, quote unquote, the end. Having loved those who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I looked this up in a wide variety of different translations because the translation I grew up with did not say to the end. The translation I grew up with was a version of the NIV that got superseded in the early 2000s. My version of the NIV was the 1984 version of the NIV, and it is the only translation that translates that last verse the way it did. All of the other modern translations all translate it as to the end. But the one I grew up with translated it this way. Let me put it up here on the screen so you can see it. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now, I didn't have time to get into all the details of why they chose to translate this differently, but I just want to highlight for you that there are two ways you can take the word to the end or the phrase to the end. Either it means that you loved that person all the way until your own death. You loved them all the way to the end the end of your life. Or it could mean you loved that person to the maximum extent of love, all the way to the end where love itself can't go any farther. You've loved them all the way to the maximum extent of love. And, and I just want to recognize that for Jesus, the only human being on the planet, both of those interpretations are true. Because see, for me, I'm never going to love someone all the way to the extent of love itself, but I'm going to, I might love someone all the way to my own death. But for Jesus, his own death was the greatest love that anyone had ever expressed. Greater love is known than this, that he lays down his life. Jesus himself, his own death was the fullest extent possible of love, which means that Jesus is now about to show them his total, total total expression of love. And the reason that's so important is that what John tells us next in this story has nothing to do with the cross. Jesus knows it's Passover. He knows that it's time for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He's now going to show them the full extent of his love, and the very next phrase does not lead us into a story of the cross. The next phrase begins to lead us into a story around a table, a story where Jesus is going to interact with his followers. And I think what John is trying to tell us is that, yeah, that cross thing that's going to come in just a few hours, that was a really loving moment. But what's going to happen right now around this table is a kind of love that matches or maybe even exceeds that other love. I think what John is trying to get at is that the love around the table that we're about to read is the loving to the end, is the full extent of love. Let me, let me show it to you. It says this, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from the Father and was come from God and was returning to God. Now, 
again, I'm going to pause here because I have to ask you a question. If you had all the power in the universe, now let's be honest with each other. If you had all the power in the universe and you knew your buddy was getting ready to stab you in the back, what would you do? You have a mirror in front of you. You can see him. He's right behind you. You have all the power in the universe. What do you do? Jesus is here in this moment, and he is aware of a level of power that is on him that no one else has ever known. And he is aware of who he is and where he's headed. He is so totally aware of who he is in this moment. And he is also aware that his betrayer is at hand. This is one of those situations with Jesus where it's just absolutely unbelievable that Jesus would not do the thing I would want to do. Let's just, let me ask you the obvious slash honest question. Have you ever attempted to defend yourself? against anything? Have you ever attempted to use the power you had to protect yourself against a threat? Have you used the power you had to protect yourself against a physical threat, against an emotional threat, against a a job threat? Have you ever used the power you had to protect yourself against an argument from someone else? See, I would expect a person with all the power to protect themselves. In fact, I kind of wonder if a guy won't protect himself, would he ever protect me? But here's Jesus. What happens next? Let's, let's read the same verses we just looked at, but let's read a little bit farther to verse 5. It says this, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from the Father and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is such a weird thing to do. Such a, now, granted, for us it's weird because it's washing feet. For them it wasn't weird because it was washing feet. Because back then in their society, everybody walked around with sandals and the ground around you was filled with muck. And when I say muck, I am not talking about dirt, okay? When I say muck, I'm talking about the, word, the thing that comes with like four or five different swear words that you could use to describe the thing because no one wants to talk about the thing. Instead, they only use the big dramatic words to talk about the thing if they ever want to talk about the thing because in the ancient world, there were no sewers, right? They didn't have that kind of thing. The whole world outside of a person's house was composed of where animals were, and it had that stuff underneath it, or the fields, which were fertilized with, you know, stuff, and the streets, which was where the animals had walked and the people had dumped their stuff from their houses. So the only clean floors ever were houses. So when you come inside from outside, what is the biggest thing 
that your host is worried about. When you are entering someone else's house, that host is going to be like, oh no, oh no. And there's 12 of them, 13 of them if you count Jesus. Okay, first things first, if, what I would do, I'd be like, I'd have a bucket of water next to the door. And I'd just be like, step in it yourself. I was at this uh, family's house once and we were having like a meal. And at the end of the meal, um, the lady announced, she said, okay, everybody go in and wash your own dish. And I'm like, on the one hand, I'm thinking, well, what a welcoming host you are. And then on the other hand, I thought, brilliant. (laughs) You know, everybody just go in and wash your own dish. I'd have like a bucket by the door and I'd be like, just when you come in, would you step in the bucket, swoosh around a little bit, but then only two people in that bucket's going to be, oh man. And so anyway, the people are coming in. And as a host, what you would want to do is you would want to wash their feet. It was normal. It was average. It was ordinary. You would usually have a slave or servant do it, but it was normal, average, ordinary. And somehow Jesus and his guys have made it almost all the way to the table and their feet are still not washed. And I'm thinking probably some of them are going to be like, are you going to do it? (laughs) You're going to do it? I'm not going to do it. You know, I sit around tables with people and it's like the, deci- the decision is who's going to pray for the meal. And you all stick your thumbs up and the last person to stick their thumbs up, that's the person who has to pray for the meal. And that's like the, that's like the prayer game that I used to pray when I was a kid or in high school or whatever. And, uh, but these guys are like, well, who's going to... And Jesus gets up and wraps a towel around his waist and gets a, a basin of water. And you better believe if you were sitting at that table, you'd be like, I waited too long. Now, now we're all going to get it. What's happening now? What is going to happen now? But I want to ask you a couple questions just because these thoughts came to me as I was preparing this, and, and I think it's important. The question is, why do we have such a problem with betrayal? Here, we're in a situation where Jesus knows he's got a betrayer. And believe you me, he knows Judas is the betrayer. We'll see that in just a couple verses. But Jesus knows that Judas is the betrayer. And he's in a situation preparing to serve these people, right? How do you and I handle betrayal? We have such a hard time with it. Before it happens, we're worried about it. After it happens, we feel like we can have no relationship with that other person. It just tears us apart, and we're worried about it all the time. But Jesus had something that you and I don't have. See, you and I are insecure. You and I are always worried about our reputation. You and I are always worried about whether or not something's going to come against us and hurt us or wound us. And Jesus is like, what's the worst they can do to me? Kill me? (laughs) That's the worst is going to happen. I mean, that whole death thing, it's going to happen anyway. So what's, what's the worst that could happen? Jesus is so secure about who he is and where he's going that he has like almost no concern about that. But you and I, we're insecure all the time. And our insecurities cause a huge problem for us because we are so worried about safety and security here that we try to preserve here. When when Jesus has promised us a there, let me show you this. This is from the next chapter. John 14. Jesus is going to say this in just one chapter. He says this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. Jesus knows who he is. He knows where he's going. He's going to the father. He is not worried at all about the journey to get there. It's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard, but he knows he's going there. He knows his destiny. He knows his destiny is with the father and that puts everything else in perspective. And you and I have the same destiny. Jesus says, if I go to my Father, I'm going to just get it ready for you, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. Listen, if we really, if we really believed what Jesus was saying, we would never feel threatened at all. If we really just believed what he said, we would never feel threatened about anything. I am so astonished whenever I find in myself a sense of fear. And I'm astonished whenever I see that kind of fear coming from some other Christian. Because if I just simply believed the words of Jesus... If I didn't understand anything else from the rest of the entire Bible and all I ever knew were the words printed in red in my Bible or even just a few of the words printed in red in my Bible, if I only knew the words of Jesus, he says he's going to give me eternal life and take me into the presence of the Father, I would never feel threatened about anything. I wouldn't worry about not having enough money. I wouldn't worry about people taking advantage of me. I wouldn't worry about any circumstance. Now, granted, We do live in a world where evil people are going to take advantage of you. But why worry about that? Why feel threatened by that? It's not like it's going to literally affect a single thing in my eternal life. My life here on earth, if I get it, probably 80 years. My grandmother lived to 100, but my grandfather only lived into his 80s. I don't know how much time I'm going to have. And whatever amount of time I do have is a sliver, a drop in the bucket, an atom in the size of eternity. And if God has a plan for me that involves eternity, then what happens here on earth? I mean, come on, for real? Why would I ever feel threatened by anything that happens here? If I just believed what Jesus said, I would never feel threatened about anything. Now, what I want to do, though, is I want to I take you to the next level. You see, we don't just feel threatened. We don't just feel threatened by a person who is trying to betray us, we also feel a weird kind of threat when it comes to someone else serving us. Like if Jesus got up from the table and he walks over to you and he's ready to wipe your feet, and you know where your feet have been, and he's ready to wipe your feet, would, would, you, be, would you be willing to receive that service? Maybe, maybe not. We're going to come to that in a little bit, but a bigger question is why didn't anyone else pick up the basin before Jesus got to it? Why didn't the host do it? See, the problem is we don't want to serve for all kinds of reasons. One, it's gross. 
I mean, it's just, it's just disgusting to help someone else with all of their problems. The reason you're you is because you don't have those problems. And the reason they are them is because they do have those problems and you don't want any of them to get onto you because they're them and you're glad you're not them and so let them deal with their problems their own way, you know? Let's just, you know, I want to be me and stay over in my little world away from their problems. I don't want to have to enter their world. I don't want to have to serve them. It's annoying. It's irritating. It's nasty. I don't want to pick up the basin. I don't want to wipe the feet. I don't want to do any of the work. And that's just one of the reasons why I don't like serving people. But there's another reason a lot of us have a hard time serving people. And it's the literal disdain that we have for those who serve. We have this idea that those who serve are somehow demeaned. Those who have to serve are somehow lesser than the rest of us who don't have to. We've got this weird idea that if I have money, I will pay someone else to do the stuff I don't want to do, and they are serving me literally because they need me. Right? That's what we have. We have this mindset that says, I want to be superior And so I'm going to use my superiority to get other people to do things for me. But Jesus also doesn't um, approve of that way of thinking either, does he? I mean, in Mark, we read this, Mark chapter 10. Jesus says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Jesus' attitude is that if you are the slave of literally everyone, you're the best. No one's better than you. You're the greatest. If you want to be the absolute top of the heap in the kingdom of God, there is a recipe given to you from the mouth of Jesus himself. All you got to do is serve literally everyone. If you do that, you will be the top. So how many of us have ambition? How many of us want to get a promotion? How many of us want to get a pay raise? How many of us want to take our lives to that next level and to experience that next measure of success? You know, you want to eventually get to that bigger house. You want to eventually own that better car. You want to eventually have whatever it is that you have now, you want the next one to be better. We all have that. Well, guess what? Jesus has given you the way for you to reach the top. You could be better than Elon Musk. You could be richer than any other human being in the entire universe of existence, all you got to do is serve the other people around you. Now, that is a problem for us because we don't believe Jesus is telling us the truth. We don't believe Jesus is telling us the truth. I don't know why we don't believe Jesus is telling us the truth, but if we really believe Jesus was telling us the truth, we would be fighting each other to serve. We would be, we would be arguing with each other that I'm not going to let you serve me. I, I showed this clip before. I don't have it with me today because, you know, we're live streaming and I can't show things uh, that are clips. But there's this, there's this TV show called The Office and there's this one clip I love where it's Dwight, this weird guy, and Andy, this other weird guy, and they're in a war to see who can outdo each other with favors. And so Dwight wants to earn a favor from everybody in the company, so he brings in bagels one morning. And then Andy is like, oh, I'm not going to let anyone have it 
over on me. If you do something for me, bam, I'm going to do a favor right on back. That way we stay even. I'm not going to owe anyone anything. And so they, they have this war between each other to see who can, who can outserve the other person. And I'm like, that, that's what Christianity should be, right? Like if we, if we, if we just believed what Jesus said, we would be so eager to serve. I'm not going to let you outserve me because I want to be better than you one of these days. It's a weird motivation, I know. But still, if we just believed what Jesus said, and we've only gotten to the place where Jesus has picked up the basin and the towel, we haven't seen what happens next. Jump to verse 6, and what we see next is crazy. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, uh, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Now, just by the way, if Jesus ever says he's going to do something and your first response to him is no, one of you is probably wrong and it's not Jesus. Um, just don't do that. Don't be that person. Peter was okay being that person. There's multiple times where he's like, Jesus, that's not going to happen. Jesus says, no, they're going to kill me. And Peter says, nah, it's not going to happen. And Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. And Peter's like, um, what did I, what just happened here? It's again, Jesus is like, I'm going to do this for you. And Peter's like, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Before you go to the next line, go back to that line. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me with me. I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, unless I wash you, you're going to be smelly. I mean, Simon could wash his own feet. He could. This isn't about getting the feet clean. Jesus makes it about some type of relationship. He makes it about some type of relationship. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You see, Jesus is saying, Peter, you don't understand, but this is the way things work with me. I serve you. You let me serve you. And I'll tell you in just a moment what you're supposed to do. But here's how it starts. Peter, this is the relationship we have with each other. I serve you. You let me serve you. And then I'll tell you what happens next. In just a moment, Jesus is going to give Peter some instructions on what to do next. But Peter is in this place where he can't receive that kind of service. And I think you and I are sometimes in that place too, where we're like, I don't want someone else to serve me. That also makes me feel weak and insignificant. We are weird people. We don't want to serve other people. We don't want to receive service from other people because we just don't know who we are and we don't pay attention to who Jesus is and what he's calling us to do. But it will become clear in just a little bit because Peter says, this is what I want from you, Jesus. Go ahead and wash all of me. Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus, if you need to wash my feet for me to have some connection with you, then let's do the whole thing. Which is weird because what he's just described is a baptism, right? Right, what he's just described is, get me wet all over, Jesus. If you want to get my feet wet, get me wet all over. Let's do this thing. Take that basin and just all over me. You know, just dunk me in it. Pour it all over me. I don't care. Just get me all wet. And Jesus, what he says next, oh, it's just so beautiful because Jesus is like, Peter, 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 you don't ever 
understand. Keep your mouth shut, let things happen, and I'll explain it to you later. But no, Peter's like, okay, if this is all just about Jesus needs to wash something, let's wash all of me. And so Jesus comes back, verse 10, he says this. Uh, Let's put that one up, 10 through 11. Jesus answers, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Remember I told you earlier, he said, I said that he knew who was going to betray him? This is that line. He knows Judas is going to betray him. So there are two things happening here. One, Peter was trying to turn this into a religious ritual. Okay, Jesus, if we need the feet thing, let's do all of me. Because more ritual is better than not more ritual, right? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. This has nothing to do with cleaning, nor does it have anything to do with doing some sort of like more is better situation. Peter, the whole thing is symbolic. The whole thing is relational. The whole thing is I'm serving you, you receive it. And then I'll tell you later what to do. That's what this is all about. It's all about relationship. But in his mind and in his heart, he knows his betrayer is sitting at the table. Do you think he made it to Peter before or after he made it to Judas? I wonder. What was the seating arrangement around this table? Had Jesus already washed Judas's feet, and so now when Peter's making this ruckus, it's just sort of silly? Because Jesus knows what's really going on, and he's like thinking, Peter, just... Uh, And do you know what I just did? I'm not even going to talk about it yet. Peter, let's deal with you. Okay, fine. Let's move on. Or do you think Judas was after Peter? And the whole time Peter is is making his scene, Jesus is out of the corner of his eye knowing that he's still coming up to this next person. Because Jesus does wash Judas' feet. The very next verse says this. When he had finished washing their feet. No exceptions. Peter tried to make an exception, but there were no exceptions. This is the part of the story that I don't think I've ever fully grasped. The part that Jesus is so certain of his identity so certain of his relationship with his heavenly father, so certain of the pain that he's going to be facing, so certain of his ultimate destiny that he can wash Judas's feet. In just a couple minutes, Jesus is going to say to Judas, Judas, go go and do what you need to do. And Judas is going to take off running. And he's going to get out of there. And everybody else is going to be confused about it. That comes in a couple minutes. He could have said that now. He could have said when he got to Judas, oh, by the way, Judas, you still have to go outside and do some more stuff. So I'm going to skip you. And then you can go out now. I'll let you go. Jesus could have said, Judas, go and do what you need to do now because you're going to get your feet dirty again or whatever. He 
could have made some sort of excuse. But no, he washes Judas' feet and then later on in the night he will say to Judas, go and do what you need to do. But he goes through the process right here in this moment of washing his feet. He says, when he's finished washing his feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked. Do you call me teacher and Lord? And rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. A couple things that Jesus says there are just absolutely fascinating. One, he says, I'm your Lord, and I've washed your feet, and... The next thing he says is, and since I'm your master and you're the servant, let me remind you of the master-servant relationship. It goes like this. The servant is no better than the master. And if the servant is no better than the master and the master has washed the servant's feet, the servant is no better. He also needs to do it too. That's the point. Jesus isn't saying, I washed your feet and now I'm putting myself underneath you. No, he says, I am your servant and this is how this thing works. The greatest among you will be at the bottom of the chart. The master is all the way down here and he serves you and you receive it and you serve the next person. The master is at the bottom. And if we followed him, we would do what he did. This whole thing leads to Verses 34 through 35. But what happens in the intervening time, I'll just give you a quick narrative. They finally sit down at the table, and Jesus says, Tonight one of you will betray me. And the people around the table, they start murmuring, Who's it going to be? Peter eventually catches John's eye, because John is sitting closest to Jesus. Peter catches his eye, and he's like, Ask him. Ask him. And so John is like, Jesus, tell me, who is it? And Jesus says, the person that I give this piece of bread to. And he gives a piece of bread to Judas. And no one else in the room knows what Jesus said to John. John knows the meaning of the moment. But everybody else just sees Jesus doing another favor for, Ju- for Judas giving Judas a piece of bread. And the text tells us that when Judas took the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus says, go and do what you need to do. And he gets up and he leaves the table. And there is something about the interaction between Jesus and Judas in this night where John specifically tells us in his text that no one suspected Judas was the betrayer. 
They all thought Jesus had given Judas a special assignment to do and that he was off doing the special assignment. That's what John tells us. He's the one who asked Jesus and he's the one who says, and all these other guys, I'm the only one who knew the meaning of that bread, but all these other guys, they all thought Jesus had given Judas a special mission. And that means that everyone had the idea that if anyone was the betrayer, it wouldn't have been Judas because Jesus knows there's a betrayer and look how Jesus treated Judas. He's serving him. He's washing his feet. He gave him the piece of bread. He gave him a special mission. No one, no one would question Judas because after all, how much did Jesus trust and love Judas? And that's where we make it to verse 34 and 35. Where then Jesus, after Judas is gone, Jesus says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's what he means when he says love one another. Throughout the passage, Jesus also gave us three reasons why we should do it. I want to highlight them for you. Reason number one, the reason we love other people, the reason we love like this is that love like this is the literal definition of following Jesus. He specifically said, this is how it works. I'm your master. I'm your Lord. You're the servant. You are not better than I am. I am the best. I am the number one person in this chain. So if I do something, you do something. And if I love you, you love the same way I loved you. And we are always going to be one step underneath the people around us. We serve other people. That's what it looks like. Love like this is the definition of following Jesus. Let's be blunt. If you don't serve other people above yourself, you are not a follower of Jesus. You might label yourself a Christian because there are all kinds of people in this country especially who label themselves Christians for one reason or another. But if you are not serving other people and putting them above yourself, then you are not a Jesus follower. That's the definition. So this is, this is where you get to make your choice. If you're not, I mean, if you're not a Jesus follower, I'm glad you're here today. If you're not a Jesus follower, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you know you're not a Jesus follower. So much of what we've talked about the last couple of weeks still is valuable to you. How to love God, how to build a relationship with God, that stuff is all valuable. How to love other people, the stuff we talked about last week is just eminently practical in how we live our lives. Life will work better for you if you love other people as yourself. It does work better. But when it comes to this kind of love, This is the kind of love that defines Christians. This is the kind of love that defines true followers of Jesus. And maybe you're one of them and maybe you're not, but you get to make that choice. And I think you should. If I'm going to call myself a Christian, if I'm going to call myself a follower of Jesus, this is what it looks like. Love like this. But there are two reasons, two other reasons that Jesus gave that are sort of more selfish for us. The next one is that love like this brings blessing to us. He says, if you do this, you will be blessed. Problem is he doesn't tell us how. 
Like in this verse, he just simply says, you will be blessed if you do these things. And then he moved on. He didn't, he didn't spend any time with that. He just says, you'll be blessed. And so I can't give you any sort of explanation. I can't say, well, if you love other people sacrificially, like Jesus loved them, like Jesus loved Peter, like he loved the others, like he loved Judas. If you love people like that, well, then you're just going to receive A, B, C, and D. I can't, I can't tell you that. I, I can't define the blessing. All I know is Jesus said, you're going to be blessed. So if you trust him, you'll roll with it. But the third one, the third one, he does give us a little bit more information. He says this, love like this, is how the world will know. Love like this is how the world will know. There was a song I learned when I was a kid. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. Sing it again. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity will one day be restored and they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. And we sang that song a bunch and I had it memorized and it was really one of these slow plotting 1960s kind of cool, but also mysterious and and like minor key, like droning, almost sad, morose, mournful kinds of songs that you couldn't tell if they were happy or if they were just really, really depressed or what. But then again, it was written in the 60s and there was a lot of stuff going on in the 60s. But we learned that song when I was a kid, and it was one of these things that just was in one ear out the other. You just hear the song, you just roll along with it. They will know we're Christians by our love. And then later on, I learned this verse, and he said, as a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I'm like, okay, so now it's also in a verse. I learned the song, I also have the verse, and it was like, no, 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 just going on with my life and all that kind of stuff. And then, growing up in a Christian church, growing up in a Christian school, growing up in all this environment, I learned all the ways to tell other people about my faith. I mean, I knew the Romans road when I was still in middle school. I knew how to tell someone how to follow the different steps of the Romans road so that they could become a believer. I knew how to share with them the gospel tract known as the four spiritual laws. I also knew another gospel tract called the, the way to life, the bridge to life. And I knew another one called knowing God personally, which totally ripped off the bridge for life but it was cooler. It was a better book. It was an easier one to go through. And I knew that one almost, I could draw it almost word for word from beginning to end. And I also had some things called chick tracks. And they were basically little tiny tracks of paper that were like a little booklet about that big. And you would open it up and you'd see these tiny little diagrams of people screaming in hell. Ah! And then you would show that to someone and you'd be like, you want to go to hell? And they'd be like, no, I don't want to go to hell. And you'd say, well, pray this prayer with me. And I got lots of people to pray the prayer with me. I was really good at helping other people pray the special prayer so that they could, you know, guarantee that they got their life insurance and they were out of, they, you know, fire insurance. They were not going to go to hell. And, and so we went through that whole process. I learned all the techniques of helping someone come to faith. And I went to seminars. I went to conferences. I went to this one conference. It was called Sun Life Evangelism and Missions Project. And we went downtown. We went to the beach and I was talking to this one. I got so many people to, to stop and talk with me and interact with me. And I got them to pray the prayer with me. And I was, my friend, friends couldn't get people to pray the prayer with them, but I could get people to pray the prayer with me. And I'd come back and I'd tell the stories and they'd be like, man, you're so lucky. And it was just, it was like, I knew, I knew the stuff. I knew all the stuff until one of these days, it was like the weirdest bolt of lightning when I realized that none of the stuff I was ever talking about with people had come from the mouth of Jesus. 
Now, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's a lie. I'm not saying it's false. What I'm saying is it never came from Jesus. And what's extra weird is that Jesus gave us a method of evangelism, a method of winning the world to us. He said, they will know you're Christians. They will know you're my disciples. They will know what they need to know about you by your love. And I was astonished when I began to learn that in high school, when I began to think about that in high school. I was like, the Jesus method of getting people to become believers is love among believers. And what was fascinating to me is that if the definition of what it means to be a Christian is how they love one another, then that also means that the biggest argument against Christianity is how Christians treat other Christians. Christians. I went to this church. It was called First Baptist of Apple Valley. And across the street was First Nazarene of Apple Valley. I had no idea what a Nazarene was. Never met a single person in that church or from that church. They were across the street from us. Down the street, literally at the other end of the road of street, it wasn't even like one mile, there was at the end of that, church, at the end of that row, First Southern Baptist Church of Apple Valley. We were First Baptist. They were First Southern Baptist. I really don't know who was there first. I'm guessing that we were first, and then they came in, and they wanted the word first, but they added the word Southern because they were... I don't know. All I know is I never met a single person from First Southern Baptist Church. My dad was the pastor of First Baptist Apple Valley, and I didn't know either any of the people from these other churches. When I was in high school, I was so convicted by the fact that Christians weren't loving one another the way the Bible had told us to love one another, that my buddy and I started a Bible study for teenagers that was intentionally multi-church. We started a multi-church youth group when I was in high school, and we eventually got to like 40 kids who were coming on a Saturday morning at 7.30. Getting high schoolers to show up at a Bible study at 7.30 on Saturday morning, I count that as a major win in my life. But nonetheless, we had so much fun trying to build bridges across different groups. We had Pentecostal kids in this thing. We had Baptist kids in the thing because of course. And then we had, we had other Baptists. I mean like totally different versions of Baptist who were also in our group. And, and it has been a burning fire in my life for 30 years now that the world might know us by our love. And I've invested my energy wherever I've had the opportunity to work towards that. When my wife and I moved here to Lafayette, we were planning to start a church. But it was our, our intention to start a church in cooperation with the other churches that already existed. So some of the first people that I met when I was in town here were other churches. And it was like, how can we help you and how can you help us? How can we work together? And I, I built relationships and connections. I eventually became the, the president of the Greater Lafayette Gospel Association. I'm now a member of a group called the Pastors Alliance. We've started Fusion, this multi-church youth group. We've started a Bible study that's a multi-church Bible study meeting on Wednesday nights. In my life, I've worked very, very hard to try to build some kind of relationship among other Christians because if they're going to know we're Christians by our love, we should somehow find a way to demonstrate our love for each other in 
the wider world. Because after all, I mean, think about it. If you found out there was a whole group of people who didn't like each other normally, but loved each other because of Jesus, wouldn't you be interested in who Jesus is? Wouldn't you be curious about that thing? Wouldn't you want to join a group that accepts you no matter who you are and loves you because of the sake of some guy named Jesus? That kind of love would be attractive. And so I've worked towards that, but here's, here's the last little thing. The problem is that Jesus also loved Judas. And I've invested all this energy trying to help Christians love other Christians. But one of the things that I've realized is that if the number one proof of our relationship to Jesus is our love, then the number one argument against Christianity is also how we treat people who are not Christians. Because see, our problem is not that we need to love Christians and not love the rest of the world. Uh, what our real problem is, is we just don't want to love anyone who's not like me. There are all kinds of churches that hate other churches because those other churches aren't like their church. All kinds of Christians who hate other Christians because those other Christians aren't like them. In fact, I heard one guy, he's like the president of a seminary in the United States, and he was talking this last week about Christian nationalism, two weeks ago, about Christian nationalism, this idea that the Christians in the country should take control of the government and make the entire government operate according to the... the according to the dictates of their idea of Christianity so that the laws of the land would reflect this particular version of Christianity. And so this one dude was interviewing this guy who's the president of a seminary, and he was asking the question, well, which church wins? Which church is going to win? And he specifically said, what do you think about like the African-American church experience? Because the seminary was a white guy in a white, predominantly white seminary talking about the kind of doctrines that are common in white churches. And so the guy asked him the question, well, what about the African-American experience? What about the theology from the African-American experience of Christianity? And this guy literally said, well, their doctrine is just so weak. Their doctrine is just wrong. And so that's why he and the other guys like him should win. Because the other people, their doctrine is wrong. And I'm thinking, you just published to the entire world that you care more about your own silo than you do about the name of Jesus. And I was incensed because the greatest argument against Christianity is our love, or rather our lack of love, for the people around us. Now listen, I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here, because you guys already are committed to this idea, except that we need, all of us, we need to be people who are actually doing it. And we've all found ways to have loopholes on this. The biggest loophole of all is the one that I've kind of taught for the last 20 years. 
Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. Well, he's looking at them. They're all believers. They're all one another's, you know. And so the one another means other believers. So love other believers in a different way, in a special way, in a better way than you would love the rest of the world. And on one hand, I still kind of believe that. On one hand, I still kind of think Jesus was saying to his followers that the standard of love they should live by is a higher standard than the rest of the world and a higher standard than the way they should love the rest of the world with one caveat. One thing I now know that I hadn't ever thought of before. And it is that literally 100% of the people in this world are almost Christians. Some people are already Christians. And everybody else is an almost Christian. Because everybody else, when they get exposed to someone who loves them, everybody else, when they get exposed to someone who really embraces them and says, let me show you the love of Jesus. Some of those people will outright reject it. But so many of them will be like, that's what I've been hungry for my whole life long. And Jesus, let's be honest, washed Judas's feet. So I want to leave you with a thought that is one of the most challenging thoughts I think I've ever had, except for the problem is that I have to somehow make it part of, a, part of my life. I'm wording, is it a, I'm wording it as a command, but it's one that I'm giving to myself even as I'm sharing it with you, because it's coming from Jesus. I've just reworded it a little bit. It says this, wash the feet of the one who wants you dead. Wash the feet of the one who wants you dead. That's what Jesus did. No excuse. Well, Judas, you know, you've got a thing to do. So how about let's, how about let's get you off to your thing and then I don't have to wash your feet. No excuse. No sidestepping. Nothing else. Listen, there's so many times in our lives that we want to protect ourselves, but Jesus didn't do that. There's so many times in our lives when we feel threatened, but Jesus never was threatened. There's so many times in our life where we withhold our love because the other person doesn't measure up to the status that we think they should measure up to in order to deserve our love. But that's the point. Love is never something that other people deserve from us. Love is the thing that Jesus gives to us to give to others. And so we wash the feet of the people who want us dead. And one of these days, if you and I ever have to face the kind of circumstance where someone actually wants us dead, in that moment, in that moment, the voice of Jesus should hopefully whisper into all of our ears, love them with your last breath. Love them all the way to the end. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I don't have a nice little package for how this applies to your life and my life. I don't have a whole list of things of how you're supposed to treat that person and that person, that other person. I just want, I hopefully want for all of us to develop this kind of attitude. That whether it's in person, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's through Twitter, whether it's my attitude towards someone else, whether it's my relative who's a conspiracy theorist, whether it's my other relative who, who doesn't believe the conspiracy I believe, whatever it is. We have to be people. We somehow have to be people, just like Jesus, who are willing to wash feet 
loving other people, even those who are against us. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.